Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And uh, if you're looking for a way to get your mind off the pandemic for a while, well, you've come to the right place, because (laughs) this is going to be a long podcast. In fact, uh, you most likely won't listen to the entire program in one sitting, but, well, I didn't feel like it should be separated into two parts, and I think you're going to see why. The first part of this podcast features Dr. Ben Sussa, who reads Chapter 3 of Leonard Picard's novel, The Rose of Paracelsus. Ben's reading is followed by commentary from Dr. Thomas Roberts. Now, longtime listeners to these podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon will remember Ben Sessa from Podcast 609, which was an introduction to this novel. And you'll probably remember Tom Roberts from Podcast 633, The Man Who Invented Bicycle Day. Now, in the program notes for this podcast, which you'll find at psychedelicsalon.com, I've added links for the previous podcasts with readings from the first two chapters of Leonard's book. Also, in the program notes, I have posted Leonard Picard's email address. Although he may not be able to answer everyone who writes, I'm sure that he'll most certainly appreciate hearing from you. As you are about to hear, both Ben and Tom have spent a significant amount of their professional lives involved in psychedelic research. And, if you have already read The Rose of Paracelsus, then you know what a powerful work of literature it is. So, you may ask, how did I find these two amazing young women, Alexa and Cat Lakey, to produce this series of readings from Leonard's book? What are their qualifications, you ask? Well, first of all, I didn't find them. In a way, they found me. And I think that the story of how today's program came to be is worth telling as uh, perhaps an inspiration for others who may want to become involved in this work. You see, everyone in the psychedelic community is self-selected. Here's how it worked with the Lakey sisters. A while back, Bruce Damer asked for volunteers to come to the DigiBarn and help organize the part of the Timothy Leary archive that Bruce is having digitized. Now, besides the Lakey sisters, my friend Lex Pelger was also a volunteer at the time, and Lex told me about them. We connected via email, they did one of the podcasts for me during my Salon 2 period, and then Kat returned to Peru, where she has been studying with several medicine workers. Well, when Leonard sent me a copy of his book and asked if I would review it, I immediately realized that this book was worthy of, (laughs) well, significantly more than a review by me. It needed its own series of podcasts. Long story short, I recruited the Lakey sisters to take on this project. Now, fast forward to the program we're about to listen to. When they began working on this chapter, Leonard was still serving life without parole in a maximum security prison, which greatly complicated the process. On top of that, Kat was in Peru when the pandemic hit, and she had to be evacuated back to the States. Well, not long after Kat returned to the safety of her sister Alexa's house, they were both evacuated due to the fires in Northern California. And after that, Kat relocated to the East Coast. And in between all of that excitement, these wonderful women produced the program that we're about to listen to. The reason I feel this story is important is in the hope that it will give you some encouragement to follow your own dreams. 
Alexa and Kat decided that they wanted to take part in what many are now calling a psychedelic renaissance. They didn't wait to get a degree or for someone to hire them or to train them somehow. They just jumped in, volunteered, taught themselves how to create a podcast, and moved ahead, in spite of many obstacles. They are a real shining example of our community, and on behalf of us all, I thank them for their tireless work. Now, before I turn this program over to the Lakey sisters, I want to do something that I've never done before, and that is to dedicate this podcast to someone. His name is Richard DeLisi, and until this month, he was the nation's longest-serving inmate for a non-violent marijuana offense. Richard served over 31 years of a 90-year sentence in Florida. And in the same case, his brother Ted also served over 20 years. So I believe that it's appropriate in today's podcast, where we're celebrating the release of Leonard Picard, that we also recognize all of our other friends, neighbors, relatives, and co-workers who are still being persecuted by the war on drugs. Now is not the time to ease off on the work required to dismantle these unjust laws. We must press on. And now, uh, on a much less confrontational note, I turn you over to the peaceful voices of the Lakey sisters. Hello, and welcome to the third chapter of the Rose of Paracelsus podcast here on the Psychedelic Salon. My name is Kat. And I'm Alexa. For those of you who have been following along with the series, this is the first episode since William Leonard Picard was freed from prison back on July 27th of this year. Leonard was released after serving 20 years of two life sentences for psychedelics in a maximum security prison. He is now with his family and sends his loving regards to those friends whose kind words and actions provided the only light in a seemingly endless darkness. Kat and I had the honor of finally meeting him in person back in October. Leonard welcomes correspondence, and Lorenzo will provide an email address to reach him at in the description of the podcast. Chapter 3 is titled, What the Doorknob Said, and is read by Dr. Ben Sessa. Ben Sessa is an acclaimed author, researcher, addictions psychiatrist, and MDMA psychotherapist for the Imperial College London. He is in the process of opening Awaken Life Sciences, the UK's first psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy clinic and will serve as its chief medical officer. Ben will introduce himself before the reading and give some background on his work. As always, we recommend picking up a hard copy of The Rose of Paracelsus to follow along. After the chapter concludes, we'll play a brief phone interview that Kat recently held with Thomas B. Roberts, PhD, professor of educational psychology at Northern Illinois University. Thomas is also an acclaimed author and the man who coined the term Bicycle Day. So without further ado, here is Dr. Ben Sessa. My name is Dr. Ben Sessa. I'm a consultant child and adolescent psychiatrist. I uh, went to University College London Medical School, qualifying in 1997, and then stayed in London for another three or four years, specialising in mental health and psychiatry. I then took about 18 months off and uh, travelled around, spent seven months on my own in India, finding myself, uh, came back considerably more lost than when I'd set out. Um, Then went to Oxford and studied in uh, child and adolescent specialty and uh, became a consultant psychiatrist in 2006. Um, I now work in the southwest of England in Bristol, 
one day a week doing child and adolescent psychiatry in a uh, custodial setting for um, 11 to 17 year olds on long custodial sentences, mostly violent uh, uh, crime and uh, that kind of thing. Um, I do one day a week in an addiction service for adults and I do three days a week working in psychopharmacology research based at Imperial College London under Professor David Nutt. Um, in the last 15 years, I've become increasingly involved in psychedelic research, having taken part in studies at, in, at Imperial College London and Bristol University with LSD, DMT, psilocybin, ketamine and MDMA. Um, I've had the great fortune and pleasure to have been either study doctor or a healthy volunteer subject receiving each of these different drugs on various occasions, usually intravenously, um, apart from the MDMA, which was oral. Um, these studies in the last 10 years at Imperial have uh, taught us a lot about the mechanism of these drugs within the brain and indeed the neurobiological substrate of consciousness itself. The multimodal imaging techniques developed by Robin Carhart-Harris at Imperial have uh, really um, pushed back the boundaries of our neurophysiological understanding of psychedelics. Uh, it's been a great privilege to be part of this. More recently, um, I am now running a clinical study in patients with alcohol use disorder, looking at MDMA-assisted psychotherapy as a treatment for this, and we're doing this in Bristol under the auspices of Imperial College London. Um, this is the world's first addiction study with MDMA. Um, obviously, uh, classical psychedelics have a very rich history in treating addictions, um, but it's never been proposed nor attempted with MDMA. And in many ways, uh, this might not work, um, because as we know, the most powerful aspect of classical psychedelic therapy for addictions is the is the strength of the mystical spiritual experience induced by classical psychedelics that seems to be the greatest factor for um, inducing abstinence from substance addiction and MDMA classically does not have such a high mystical spiritual effect um, maybe 10 to 15 percent of first time threshold dose users of MDMA will report a sort of divine aspect to the experience which is uh, tiny compared to the 80 to 90 percent that report such experiences with classical psychedelics nevertheless what we do also know of MDMA is that it has particularly good effects at managing trauma and inducing empathy and increasing and augmenting the relationship between the patient and the therapist. So we are putting two and two together here and saying we know that addictions are underpinned by trauma in the majority of cases and we know that MDMA works for trauma so let's see what happens if we use MDMA assisted psychotherapy for trauma and that really is the rationale behind our current study. So anyway it's a great pleasure to be reading this it is, and I'm going to be reading chapter three what the doorknob said so I will stop this recording um, check the levels, and then get on with the reading. OK, thank you. Chapter 3. What the Doorknob Said Inscription over Dexter Gate, entry to Harvard Yard. Enter to grow in wisdom. Depart 
to better serve thy country and thy kind. Radical journalist John Reed, 10, author of Ten Days That Shook the World on the Bolshevik Revolution and Buried Outside Kremlin Walls. There was talk of the world and daring thought and intellectual insurgency. Heresy has always been a Harvard and New England tradition. No matter who you were or what you did, at Harvard you could always find your kind. Somni 451 in David Mitchell's Cloud Atlas Snow is bruised lilac in half-light. The heavyweight eight crew, pulling the long blades of their rowing skulls in tandem, raced down the Charles River towards Longfellow Bridge. It was a halcyon August at Fair Harvard. The brilliant plumages of students, umbrellas adorning the wide mossy banks of the Charles's tawny waterway, the summer curving in from some mystic latitude. Sails of small boats filled and tossed. There were obscure movements of oars and arms above the glittering water. Students crowded the coop for texts or strolled Harvard Square. Many paced along the Charles, beneath the cupolas and bell towers of Elliot, Lowell and Dunster houses. The elegant neo-Georgian revivalist piles for upper-classmen and women. Some students were electrified by their prospects, some fearful. Others soberly entered the houses as the faithful to mosques but all were preparing for the intense labour of thought and ritual to come. A long-legged undergraduate girl, slender as an Easter lily and almost naked but for shorts, lay unsheathed reading a volume on the decryption of Linear B by Mycenaean scholars. The gold and blue domes of Lowell and Elliot houses were nippled minarets, caressed by white doves upwards. The distant singing and music of those gathered here to learn evoked ancient robed musins at dawn reciting the abed. I praise the perfection of God, the forever existing. We were assembling on the Charles Embankment in these first days, retreating from the loutish reality of the world. Thrilled and anxious scholars hearing legends of Cambridge and its jasmine-petalled nights. We walked down the remembered streets, at moments even dancing among their novel innocences. In these treasured handfuls of the last blue days of summer, with soft cloud formations high above, white puffs of blossoms scattered in Harvard Yard. We all became encompassed by the university's sky-floating mirages of our futures and its granite monuments to the dead. 
Many were from the far corners of nations, but all had arrived in this capital of memory to rework our personal and the world's realities. Among the burnished arbours of leaf-green ivy, a new sense of self-possession was kindling. At first, like travellers relating only to sullen cashiers, we were isolated by loneliness. Yet from the balm of frequent receptions soon arose a new village of lightning friendships. Although garden party hats and gloves were seen no longer in the mauve dusks, the exclusions and rigours of expected excellence still prevailed. The towers of Winthrop and Adams' houses looked upon us, the newly anointed, the fleet, and those uncertain of their gifts. All too soon a blood-red moon sometimes would wander, as term progressed above the white steeples of Memorial Church in the yard, waiting for our fear of the ungraspable lecture or assignment and our dismal, irrevocable public failure. But on this special night... The moon was high and white, turning over Harvard Square. It was the evening before orientations for the undergraduate classes in the yard, and at the Kennedy School of Government, now Harvard Kennedy School, HKS, the moon seemed of other faiths, the square full of its light upon a sprawling subcontinent of castes and creeds, as students from a hundred cultures gathered to worship the gods of thoughts. Ranks of mathematicians and cyberneticists locked in royal chess by the patisseries, while young tattooed and pierced townies sat in small groups before the MTA entrance, with exaggerated purposelessness. Low mists trammelled the outline of the Charles, as ghostly sails like wings went down moonbeams in the water. It was a tableau vivant of song and intrigues, cooperation and competition. Student a cappella groups serenaded the undergraduate crocodillos in tuxedos and green shoes singing Istanbul, not Constantinople. The Radcliffe Call Society, with magicals in counterpoint with the Collegium Musicum, while Elizabethan minstrels performed among skirling bagpipes. Lacklustre pigeons began to flap beneath the excited crowds. A shiver of tambourines announced the haunting gentleness of Peruvian flutes, while buskers played the Beatles and sang, You say it's your birthday. Students and faculty, laughing or in sombre homage, considered the graduate schools of law and medicine, arts and sciences, 
or malic quant laboratories where insulin, lysergic acid, chlorophyll, quinine and napalm first were synthesised. Dog-eared jazz flowed from street saxophones. Idlers squatted or walked apathetically off stage. And fellow Kennedy School matriculants with name tags began practising the elaborate kindnesses of diplomats. By the Charles, alone, I sang to myself. We shall gather at the river the beautiful, beautiful river. I struck up a conversation with Chris, an entering HKS student. We sat on the steps of Holden Chapel, 1744, in the northwest side of the old yard, beneath Mrs. Holden's coat of arms. Young men and women, required to live in the yard in their first year, were struggling with sofas into Pennypacker and Rigglesworth Halls. A few had the look of inheritors. Some seemed the children of tradesmen or merchants, others from straitened circumstances, but all with the gifts upon which no value could be placed. The yard seems too small for everyone, I opened tentatively. After freshman year, they go to the houses, Cabot, Leverett, Quincy, others by the Charles or near Radcliffe Quad. But look at this diversity. How does admissions choose? (laughs) Harvard could fill its freshman class with perfect SAT scores, but seeks the ineffable potential for greatness. Not to worry, we're merely grad students. A lesser breed. Many of us were in our thirties or later and struggling even now. Already proven failures at being titans, he said, smiling broadly. He seemed admirably balanced in perspective. Can you distinguish who's who yet among the freshmen? Some are poor Indians with the mind of Ramanujan, whose equations could change the world. Another might be the future Aga Khan, with a string of chateau or the daughter of a seamstress. So it's a matter of mind, not circumstance. That's it. Even the president of the university, an English literature scholar and noted expert on the verse of Sir Philip Sidney, is the son of a guard at Danbury Prison and a lifelong waitress. Harvard is the ultimate meritocracy. He had me for a moment. I said nothing. Thankfully, he went on. The houses all have formal dining rooms, music rooms, lesser works of old masters. They smell of potpourri and antiquarian books, wax polish, candles and camellias, and brow sweat and sex although less often the latter. We considered a trio of Radcliffians, now Harvard women, very much arm-in-arm and trouncing onwards, singing Ode to Joy in German. 
The Cliffies are so fast, academically at least, that if we were horses, he reflected airily, they would be in the paddock at Longchamp. He spoke with the wistfulness of the inexperienced. We lost each other in the mad ramblings of Harvard Square. But I wondered late, agape at the angel-haunted spaces of the Aiken Computer Lab, the site of the first computers and internet node. At the law school, I fell asleep on couches beneath paintings in the treasure room. Its windows looked in upon a sealed space, designed to protect atomic secrets during World War Two, that opened to secret underground tunnels to the physics labs. Penetrating closer to the decision-makers, I dreamed of a star on Earth and a dragon that ate the sky. A Surreal Jolt Early orientation at the Kennedy School was a torrent of unfamiliar words and concepts, a wonder-working cure for our huddled anonymity. On a break, some students seemed agromaniacs like inbred politicians. Others had a heightened social awareness, while a few at first were completely at sea. By noon, it was a rancorous gaggle of the blessed, mixing in the trumpeting sunlight. Ever surrounded by the university's unconscious pageantry of feudalism, in these first weeks before midterms, there were to our delight the vertiginous pleasures of imagined competences and equality. We toasted each other, suspending our prior mental sloth, private wilderness and obscure missions. We smiled affectionately and had undisguised fervour for our future professions as analysts. Our need for reserve and solitude, though, as we began scrambling to survive the progressive cognitive challenges, too soon made us recluses. No less than Ho Shinji, we were scholar monks, meditating on information as streams of data merged and flowed in our darkness. Multinational in origins, ethnically diverse, HKS students inevitably possessed a certain high-strung quality. Fully grounded competitors, born to excel, they frequently were magnetically engaging, while some, more rarely, were withdrawn in such an academic way that one erred in thinking them timid, then later comforting a ferocious intellect. While a few attained a sense of entitlement as heirs to the university's imprimatur, all students soon were tempered by a pervasive feeling of constantly drowning together, overwhelmed by the rings of the world's sorrows and its unimaginable promise. Chris reappeared forever au courant with university law and politics. I spotted him being ejected from a closed and gloomy subterranean library, relying on his default of good manners. 
vaguely amiable and bespectacled, with shiny black Oxford brogues, and the physical size and mental agility of T.E. Lawrence, he usually had an air of grave preoccupation. Ever so courteous and cautious with Harvard women, he tried social endearments and avuncular tricks of speech, occasionally managing a date. In battles of wit, he fell back upon Schopenhauer, Hume or Spengler, but his personal kindnesses were disarming. His fine brows and future were unclouded. He never mentioned or inquired as to others' backgrounds, attracting me with this gentlemanly quality. Light-hearted at moments, he soon felt it his duty to demolish my monk's liturgical air. To that end, he delighted in mimicking esteemed Cambridge notables, but took particular pleasure in the drawl of Strom Thurmond, then chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, with his wicked quotidian platitudes. I am asking you about intelligence, sir. Chris's hand affects to cover a microphone. We deal in intelligence for this here intelligence committee. Even if you can't pass no literacy test. Now, where's my briefing book? I termed him privately the Hulk for his diminutive size was offset by the playful muscularity of his thought. Between our exhilarated but timid arrival and our staggering but glorious departure years later, there was, beside the information and faculty, only the wonder of such bright souls. Our first classes were pervaded with a sense of self-satisfaction at having arrived, but also with fright at the thought of not remaining so. Papers shuffled, lights trembled from eyes contracted with adrenaline, welcoming or exultant gazes were replaced with expressions of malaise at irremediable gaffes. While several students were surviving dual-degree programmes at the medical or law school, I was burdened by a simultaneous appointment at Harvard Medical School. As a new officer of the university, I soon became aware of the six international psychedelic chemists and, among proliferating research topics, sought to study them. In lectures, young assistant professors evoked nervous laughter by their hope that in a few weeks we might be up to speed. Distinguished older faculty peered in upon us with laboured, almost heretic movements. I noticed a faint blue love-bite a rarity never to be seen again among Harvard's fairest, 
fading upon the long, lovely neck of a daughter of a leading Buenos Aires family. It was the last kiss of an Argentine knight. I scribbled in the margins of a dream, while others addressed themselves to sheaves of notes, stunned but affecting to think. The air became charged with the savagery of competition. Mind and spirit grew restless. The first deadlines for insoluble problem sets were in sight. I began studying the love-bite as it disappeared, her quiet profile bending over inscrutable passages. In the mental Saturnalia to come, we would all play the role of a machine à plaisir. A sea of academic stars, confronted by ceaseless, insurmountable waves of data, purposely generated by faculty to be almost unmanageable, all somehow persisted through their sense of duty to public service, and in part from their origins. Half the students were international, the gifted youth of small villages in India and Russia, chosen for this privilege, brought to America, exposed to the democratic ideal and, through such harvesting of talent, trained to lead, influence decision-makers as analysts or become high-level officials. Harvard continually reseeded nations with future policy makers and connections, yielding a porosity of intelligence information among peers worldwide that no covert action ever could accomplish. La Femme Murphy, the student's name for her, bounded into view. To me, she was a Murph the Surf, a Boston Irish redhead with a disputed overseas history and uncertain friends in Malibu. She was rumoured to be a Wellesley survivor. Displaying perfect graces and the de rigueur tailored navy blue suit cut slightly too high, she was beautiful in an etiolated way, with legs as long as an ibis, and almost trembling with life force, surf was windblown when she arrived, spring dew without a flaw. Her skin flushed lightly. She sometimes had a low, melodious voice among her many dramatic poses. Like a woman ruefully aware, she was marooned on some inaccessible moonscape. Surf still had a little cream on her lip from a café vinoise. A blue velvet ribbon surrounded her throat. She had noticed my guileless admiration in class. Just out of our lecture on childhood poverty in the Bangladeshi slums, she was dismal, tearful, moving awkwardly. In a sweet high register, her blue eyes changing to smoke, she made a broken pronouncement quoting her beloved Yeats.
She comes, the human child, to the waters and the wild, with a fairy heart in hand, for the world's more full of weeping than she can understand. Her looks that day were unguarded and shy as a small, ancient, trusting girl. We had no idea of her personal experiences. Although Serf at times had an unconscious coquetry, she was unmated among the diverse heredities at HKS, for her subtle wildness was fearsome to conservative academics. At lecture, she had a powerful grasp of policy matters and prevailed unshrinkingly like a medieval scholar splitting theological hairs. She could be stern with those splendid eyes. Less about knowledge than acquiring personal confidence to engage in serious dialogue from boardroom to national laboratory to defence establishments to palace halls, HKS first taught us intellectual fearlessness, then evolution from competitive Harvard arrivists to eager cooperation in groups. We trained to submerge lifetimes of one-upmanship for the broader public good. One student circulated through HKS minefields to become the youngest minister of Serbia. Another mid-career CIA officer returned to the duplicates of spycraft to ferret out the next traitor in the ranks. Yet another to dusty encampments in Tibet to lay water lines and treat endemic high-altitude glaucoma. Many others went to the White House or State or Congress as staffers or policy analysts, some to the financial sector and leisurely lunches in Brussels and The Hague, another to the World Bank to make loans for milk for a hundred million children on the floodplains of India. A few were destined to Wall Street's golden handshakes and trading in arbitrage. Even as a cluster went to the Peace Corps for food and a tent while teaching disaster management to thin, bedraggled refugees digging latrines in Eritrea's famine belt. Classes began promptly on Harvard time, seven minutes after the hour, a habit some alums continued all their lives. In these first months, as dreaded mid-terms approached, we became filled with forests of heartbeats, for our thoughts were those of startled hares. Some of the lectures had evolved into such fusillades of words that we became as poor worshippers in a cathedral of sighs. While statistics professors eagerly loaded whiteboards with indecipherable nests of flowcharts, Surf took to making suicide gestures across her delicate throat with her long, perfect fingers. Against this deluge of demands, an intellectual rigor mortis soon developed, 
only flickering electric signs of the imagination occasionally flashed down from the firmament. Even Hulk, after being summoned to stand and deliver a summary of the week's salient points, surreptitiously placed his head in his hands. Under such stress, the elms and oaks in the yard began to seem like crude Dardarists' paintings. Rigglesworth was a bristling fortification. On good days, we mistook the yard's failing light in the fall for some hopeful vernal landscape. Hulk, stricken with the pace, began appearing with a cold, marmorial cast to this skin. Serf, though, whom one might think the fruit of perfect breeding, pretended a studied naturalness, claiming with careless hair-tosses an impatience with partial information and a mania for exactitude. But Serf, and all of us by that time, were merely waxworks lost in a house of economists' mirrors. Not all was glory. One hapless visiting researcher in a small seminar intoned axioms in a listless voice, espousing the dogma of a sect, but with an expression as though he were bequeathing knowledge in a shower of silver arrows. Unintelligible, and the prevailing egalitarian sympathies of Keynesian theory, he fluted. At the very edge of hysteria, we all listened gravely, pens motionless over paper. The excellence of HKS professors had made us hypersensitive to Kant, imperiousness, or illogical thinking. We rebelled at this seminar, at the portentous circumlocutions of his meddlesome pedantries. With the fervour of amateurs in a new medium, prone to unhesitating argument, we were a difficult audience. Distracted from the drone, I suddenly noticed through the window an unearthly light, one I forever kept to myself. The last of the camellias, their foamy white blossoms loose with petals, were infused with music and radiance. I had just returned to Cambridge from interviews with Crimson on the beach by the fireside, the night of illumined moon and sea. My notes on that ungraspable event, some written in an alley in San Francisco, were in disarray. It still was an uncertainty that analysis of an international psychedelic trafficking organisation would be achievable at Harvard Medical School, with its primary concerns about addictive drugs. In haste, over masses of economic graphs, I wrote CRIMSON in large block letters on my notepad. Hulk, obliquely overseeing this reminder, thought I referred to the Harvard student newspaper or the athletic teams. Pretending to listen to the lecture, I failed to dissuade him. A petal floated through symphonies and choirs, and worlds upon worlds to the earth.
The visiting researcher, a contented dogmatist, was assailed by wry comments. His fifty minutes, no more, he grew specious, then seemed more attentive to the oriental allurements of our Filipinas, sisters from a notable banking family in Manila. Decidedly unimpressed with his occidental piety, they abruptly did a volk fast, long hair flinging, glasses perched on noses. A roaring northern rain began, the last of the fall. The camellia petals were swept downstream. A telephone shrilled as a thousand scholars marched to the next ganglion in our HKS nervous system. We, thankfully, were among them. I recognised a lean, solitary figure besieging a young HKS woman, who began yielding her perceptual coolness with a grudging but obvious pleasure. David Kay, who became the most gracious of friends, was Hammersmith, or Hammer to me, named for his absolute incisive mind and concise arguments, always directly on point. Hammer was a Kentucky boy with a Judaic gloom and a Levantine shadow of a beard, despite attempts at being clean-shaven. He had surrendered his private life to HKS and Harvard Law School as a dual-degree student. A provincial at heart, with a formal politeness and bright, tired eyes, he was a king of complex absorption. While HKS students were learning deportment, diplomacy, speech and oratory, networking analysis and briefing book writing, Hammer conceived and promulgated secretive barbed poetry. In a seminar with a Pentagon official, he passed a handwritten note resorting to Blake. And the hapless soldiers sigh, runs in blood down palace walls. I first noticed Hammer in a national security lecture, lifting his eyebrows to me like someone signalling from an unknown universe. In class confrontations, he often had the last word. His logical summations dropped like falling stars and expired in the astonished silences. Hammer had dark, appraising eyes. He admired the HKS woman's surly magnificence, her own satin eyes like a thundercloud brooding over fertile fields. Hammer the lad was clever, not pressing. He waved to me, then sauntered with an umbrella and his new acquaintance past the line of black limousines and duty cars of visiting dignitaries through the HKS gates. He had exemplary dispatch and a profile of crisply cut features. I heard him entertaining her with Cambridge quotes in his clearly enunciated way. Francis Crick would seduce undergraduates by saying, Dear, do come up and see my Nobel. She tittered and smiled. 
They cut in front of the defence minister of Lebanon, Hammer unsettling me with a look while describing his lost weekend and paraphrasing Arthur Kostler. I had the secret of the universe last night, but this morning I forgot what it was. With such a layering of personalities, introductions, histories, futures and hidden reasons for being at Harvard, a moment's encounter resulted for many in a project anywhere in the world, under any government researching weapons systems or children's diseases, fragile oceans or toxic atmospheres, diplomatic intrigues in Namibia or Malaysian financial systems. HKS case studies were directed at leaderships or controlling parties, while training increased one's ease with high officials. But most of all, for the public good, instruction concerned how organisations could be made more humane or more lethal. Mid-career students, who were night fighter pilots, were at first unaware of others nearby who were prospective or actual intelligence analysts. They both separately considered from their prospect of the trigger or the pen, as they walked and conversed in excited groups in HKS courtyards, how Warcraft might be refined against those who would violently oppose the interests of the United States. I first observed a splendid young six-foot Princeton woman, now an HKS student in clinging gossamer grey cashmere, when she giggled during lecture at the elitist tone of an Indian Oxford alum's comment on populist manners. She reappeared at the HKS gate, breathless and bouncing, in a skin-tight black tracksuit, her slender eyebrows narrowed, her blonde hair in a runner's ponytail, provoking me with a question as she continued to jog up and down. Given the demands of our evenings, do you think... A Polish immersion course is insurmountable. I mean, as an elective, could one squeeze it in? Through Old Yard, then dancing lightly in her long black coat up the steps of Widener Library, past the massive granite lion's couchant, she trailed a wake-like comet's hair fanning. Her smouldering blue eyes, unconscious of their effect, and focused on the data at hand, induced in others a starry ache. She was long-waisted, slinky from a perspective, strikingly European. Once past this formidable exterior, one found a secret warmth, an endearing candor. I could only give her the sobriquet Hagendas, so much was she fancied by Harvard men, like ice cream by the Charles on a summer's afternoon. She tasted like strawberries, her rumours held. 
but within her physical vessel lay oracular thoughts. She was an unimpeded academic. Since her childhood at the Lycée Frances in New York City and Le Rosy in Switzerland. The daughter of an accomplished couple, surrounded as a girl by artists and writers and scientists who frequented her home and dinner table, Hagendas was always a step ahead. Her failings included the touch of envy in others, but she preserved her graces. When in the night she passed the inviting doors of Wigglesworth or Pennypacker, she became a legitimate idolatry for undergraduate men, and even a few women who in their scholarly tensions still retained a certain ardour for school mistresses. Handsome and reserved, she had a cool, clear, honeyed voice, perhaps in F major, except when in opposition or annoyed. Her secret followers imagined her divine splendour in bed, but if she had lovers, they remained forever conjectural. In lecture, she caught my eye, her arm held behind her head, stretching, pushing back the fair hair, a little mild star-gazing. I got her wavelength. Hagendas, golden blonde, writing in Widener in her exquisite hand with long, silken fingers, often seemed like a Victorian gentlewoman painting watercolours. My experiences prior to Harvard, though, and more so during Harvard, when later exposed to the majestic erotic practices of the six, led me to a tolerant admiration of her rather than some disturbing, inconvenient, unquenchable desire. They all cornered me one day. Hulk, Surf, Hammer, Hagendas, and a tall white Afrikaner woman, and an eternally serious Albanian girl from Tirana. How does data swamping turn us into leaders? said Hagendas, born to direct. We're becoming data rats, burrowers, said Hulk, overlooking the moles. Statistics notes, anyone? said Hammer, ever cautious at sneak attacks by observant faculty with pop quizzes. Penny loafers, cried Surf to my horror, pointing gleefully at my new conservative footwear. I had arrived from Hoshinji with only a few clothes in underground ascetic black, the fashion of the day. Later, adopting Crimson's practice of not being noticed but blending in seamlessly, I had acquired dull grey slacks and sports jacket and was indistinguishable from overstressed junior faculty. The white Afrikaner had the last word. Thinking I had succumbed to Harvard's dubious sartorial flair, she dryly commented, to nods all round, I don't let this place get to me. There were countless receptions on the top floors of HKS, with its mandarin calm, cinnamon walls, green baize tables, roped-off sitting rooms, New England paintings and overview along the Charles from Harvard to MIT. 
Here we learned the easy aridities of social practice, and our hearts were bright. Several exceptionally promising young doctoral candidates were visiting. We arrived at one of the myriad gatherings for students to engage with faculty, governors, noblists, and rainbow of former White House officials. The latter commonly were defrocked high-level bureaucrats waiting out the current administration with HKS teaching appointments. Mingling with this electric assortment of potential encounters, each a railway to traditional worlds, we passed a gallery of presidential portraits from Washington to Eisenhower. Through the vocal scholars, beyond the well-tendered lawns, sunshine was rippling on the Charles. We soon spied a tidy, poised gentleman in his early seventies, standing somewhat apart. With tailored suit, tight military haircut, pale blue eyes and bow tie, he was reminiscent of a headmaster at St. Paul's or Coate. After light pleasantries, we entered into commerce with Ken Naus, a senior officer late of the CIA Operations Directorate, now the National Clandestine Service. He chatted as amiably as any Gloucestershire vicar, rather than one protective of unspeakable secrets. He was a master of war. Naus was a prime example of the legendary CIA spies always in residence, hobbyists all as talent spotters who harvested analysts from HKS classes. He was writing a manuscript on his early days as the young case officer who smuggled the adolescent Dalai Lama out of the Patala Palace in Lhasa. Through regiments of Chinese seeking his holiness for other than religious purposes. On a train of mules accompanied by monks with prayer flags and bells, porters with bricks of tea and yak butter samper, together with a small coterie of armed CIA personnel with encrypted radios, Naus and the Dalai Lama carefully treaded across the ice abysses and couloirs in the high passes of the Himalayas, from Tibet down into the lush lowlands of Dharamsala, India. Naus deflected our tentative inquiries into CIA tradecraft by easy and inoffensive verbal parries, the skills of a lifetime. He did acknowledge knowing Ken Olson, the biochemist under CIA psychiatrist Sidney Gottlieb, who died suddenly by defenestration, plunging twenty stories, either pushed or suicidal, after being overdosed by CIA employees. Yes, I am aware of Olson. CIA Technical Services staff purposely administered Olson LSD as an unwitting experimental subject in Operation MK Ultra during CIA's effort to weaponize LSD as an interrogation agent in the Cold War. Naus said little about Olson. 
Our benign generalities otherwise were not too pressing for him, so that we parted in an urbane way. I remained gratified by the gentlemanly manner of the secret services. If not their artful circumspection of actual intelligence information, for they were deft in creating a black hole from which no light emitted, save the smile of a Cheshire cat. Surf and Hulk and I sought refuge on a Saturday night, as fall term began to coil towards winter. We came from Memorial Hall in the yard into the square, where before the MTA entrance was a scattering of club kids with smudged eyeliner and one likely predator with an uncouthness of mien. On the far, dark bank of the Charles, as though it were the last of summer evenings, a lavish girl with cascades of black hair, wearing only a Mount Holyoke t-shirt and quite snug pink short shorts, sat barefoot with her long legs tightly embracing a thin Boston conservatory student. His violin case was opened wide, exposing folds of soft red velvet. In slow movements, a kind of andante glissando, he in perfect time caressed her burgeoning cleft. As she approached the Beatitudes, eclipses of the moon began spreading across her face. In the fecund silence, the sky in those long moments seemed molten stars. In an accelerando, her muffled cries were inaudible but to us. We withdrew past the Anderson Bridge to give them peace. Hulk grew quiet with sympathetic adoration at the simple beauty of shamelessness. Clearly a summer student, Surf remarked with irreverence, the spell evaporating. In a huff, she paced restlessly, turning here and there with pangs of envy, but still transfixed on the distant passion. "'There have been no orgasms at Harvard,' she said, "'since the business school shorted Wall Street in 1929.' Surf referred to the apparent lack of sex among grad students. Although many walked purposely, intent on world conquest, one rarely saw anyone even holding hands. One's calendar of desire was penciled in lightly, and mostly erased among impossibly scheduled hours weeks in advance. Our relentless, hyperactive undergraduates with those prepossessing frontal lobes and the obligations of genetic drift were quite another matter. We continued up the Charles in the evening, where Memorial Drive traffic had been blocked off all the way to MIT. Beneath grand tents, almost nude Taiko drummers in sweaty loincloths struck great drums in racy, overheated rhythms. Flocks of skaters swayed like seagrass as they flowed down open lanes. Semi-professional student mourners wore skeletal masks in a burial procession for the Chemical Weapons Treaty. 
Danish women engineers picked suggestively at the tassels of soft cushions beside owlish, frozen MIT students, while strobes and lasers shot from high suites in Lowell and Elliott houses. The light show precipitated thoughts of crimson and how Harvard students were not unlike the six. Both groups had a global theatre of operations. They were exiles of circumstance from many worlds, yet there was a fantastic poetry to them. Floating to the square, we saw Harvard women, fresh from encounters down the cobbled streets, teetering in high heels in the walk of shame for Puritans or the stride of pride for Libertines. Parisian students sat with languid, fruitless airs, having lost their half-dozen pliant French mistresses, and now confronted by thinking women with advanced cognitive skills. They claimed no taste for a girl that night. Posses of diverse women students were practising the samba down Mass Ave, reeling hasty pudding dramaturges, flouncing in diaphanous lace and chiffon spikes, affected messy chic party hair and faux whorish latex pencil skirts. Clusters of cosmological physics students from Lowell Observatory wore fitted tops, corset belts, killer heels with vanity straps or hound's tooth and snakeskin pumps. Others, the last of the Egyptologists danced with Professor Gropius's Bauhaus school designers. We had stumbled upon some celebrity haute couture catwalk of academic orgyists, where excluded and less well-feathered males grouped in local bars resorting to dropping the H-bomb, their matriculation in Cambridge, in hope of a date. College girls from west of the Charles to the Pacific were visiting. UCLA undergrad women on leave wore mouse ears. Dunster house men wore moose ears. Leverett house men wore rabbit ears. Mass Ave was rather like a galactic watering hole. I thought of the Harvard Botanical Museum nearby, where the inestimable Amazon explorer and ethnopharmacologist Richard Evans Schultz often had startlingly elegant, formidably serious grad students. Arrived from hot tribal nights in primitive villages in the Orinoco Basin, they insisted on keyboarding about hallucinogenic snuffs administered through blowpipes, while in the muggy Cambridge summers, the women writing their PhD theses were simply adorned with a macaw feather on a leather string, and were otherwise naked to the waist. Within these visions with their assumption of permanent excellence and privilege, the corrective sense of midterms came softly toward us. They were clouds filling our horizon, condensing in the mind like dew. The autumn lucidity became smoky, a strident curt reality began to set in. Leaves rained down in drifts to motley patchworks, as did our progressive sense of desolation.
all wired together now to survive. HKS students bewailed their misfortunes about Machiavellian problem sets. The libraries at HKS and Widener became machine-like with robot intensity. Hammer began clutching his notes, his face ashen and furtive, as if economic analysis were a crime. Ad hoc study groups proliferated fearfully, our mingled voices like prayers for knowledge to be contagious. In her round violet sunglasses, Hagendas pretended a cool exterior, but we all trudged on in dogged misery. A few HKS students tried late transfers to the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton, more scholarships, or the Safety School, Yale. The images of eight U.S. presidents and 48 noblists from Harvard seemed guardian angels ascending into the blue, expanding like some mystical rose, until the harsh truth of our frantic incompetence dispersed these hosts with blistering candor. In our half-dreary stupefaction, some tried to catechise the silences with sacraments of caffeine and chocolate, but by that time thought had perished. There was a mental shrieking. The air was rank with fatigue and wet overcoats. In the last dusk before midterms, I walked on a break through the variable airs of the Charles to a far jetty. Thinking of the night with crimson, I saw overhead an unforgettable grandeur, the lightest of silver rains from the north, the last of the dying sun opposing a young rising moon, the cobwebs of changing light, as if the sky had gone mad. Returning to HKS for the final push, I remembered that the faculty had been exemplary, they were rhetoricians of peace, then of war, even as their speech in the first months had the cadence of immortal poetry. But as we lost control of the information, and our fear broke loose, lectures sometimes seemed oratund, then doggerel, the poetics of distraction. Withdrawing into anxiety, we only half heard what had become wretched words. I saw that the faint blue love-bite had yellowed. The days of golden anticipation were no more. Even rushing to Widener would waste precious minutes. In the HKS library was Hagendas, her flawless head bent down to take long draughts of impenetrable arcana. Our Mediterranean women, puzzling over great tomes, had Byzantine faces, their profiles like frescoes. Hulk crouched over a statistics problem totally anaesthetized. Cerf had a not altogether mock resignation. Hammer, his reserves depleted, approached the next page with reticence, almost shame. An iron band was around our heads, putting us out of humour. We began to read widely, fretfully, with a sullen emphasis. Mawkish and callow undergrads, fleeing from Widener, looked on us with pity.
We tried clearing our minds of the debris of fumbling calculations, one eye on our inadequacies and the other on janitorial careers. At closing bell, we all detached ourselves from our study corrals, clumsy and taciturn. Those pulling all-nighters walked in somnambulant shrouds by the darkling Charles, I among them, lost in a maze of breathing amorphous data. Someone was sailing under the moon, heeling on a freshet, waters lapping the prow, then tacking with one running light down the channel as though it were a Venetian Grand Canal. Clouds of silver pigeons climbed in wisps and puffs, driving upwards to moon-white clouds. Still sensitive from my encounter with Crimson, I briefly banished midterms from my mind with the scent of their enigma. I remembered the transformations by the fire with Crimson, where all the ages of history passed like a storybook. It seemed some mythical calculus of hermetical law, but others would think it mumbo-jumbo, a kind of parlour mysticism. It was then that I firmly decided to investigate such visionary states through the appointment at Harvard Medical School, secondary to a study of the economics and methods of the six. From these recollections my mind fired. I sat reviewing notes by the Charles until dawn overtook the sky. We entered the lecture hall in a dream, blank, lightly crazed, our confidence a poor joke. Hours passed in white light, torn blue books, hastily inscribed with best guesses and parroted fragments of misinformation circulated limply back to the proctor. The only smiles were those of relief. Suddenly, midterms were over. Where the first now became the last, then we were free, like bandaged patients climbing from gurneys into the delicious morning air. The weather was changing. Great winter storms lurked off Kennebunk Port, up the rugged main coast. Wet leaves lay in mounds in the yard. Students were bound up tightly by the alien integers of their mid-term grades. There were histrionic silences and a pervading melancholy under cold rains. Intermittent stabbings of reality assured us of our imminent demise. The Charles was choppy, with white crests from magisterial north winds, even... In calms, a heavy damp came off the river with dense, blurred ground mists. A last sailboat wallowed and yawed for a while, then suddenly heeled before the wind. Laying in sheets, shaking down the jib, coming about and tacking to shore to make fast. It finally turned on the stern anchor, helpless before the incoming weather. The high-spirited little warrior tribes of Harvard Square dwindled into gossip of the lazy and envious. Unconscious moral judgments flashed about. One unfortunate girl, common and fast-looking, kept swinging her leg so close to the needles and sores.
After the hushing of the rains, as rare sunlight dried its damp facades, Massachusetts Hall became an old, faded daguerreotype. We moved through cold currents, the air full of static electricity. Our coloured fantasies soon drained in the insistent river wind. The nights became frozen, the stars brilliant. I often walked by the crisp beauty of Elliot, Quincy and Lowell houses, alight by the lonely waters of the Charles, thinking that this marathon intellectual orgy was but a spiralling labyrinth of concealed motives. The survivors thus far only whispered bruised affections, for our piercing happiness was suspended until finals. The grad students looked for traction. The undergrads yielded their infectious high spirits, their champagne tipsiness, their spent kisses for new constellations of profound effort. Odd gleams of sunshine riddled the yard. Torrents of brass-brown leaves swirled until the first heavy frosts peeled the sky clear. Lean, long-haired, well-featured senior women undergrads stalked the steps of Widener, their chilled cheeks blushing, wearing long mufflers, fine gloves or mittens, leg warmers and ankle-length coats nipped at the waist. Lovely in their focus, they sought warm, silent alcoves to ponder Goethe or Swedenborg with furtive glances at Exeter or Andover alums, or at each other. I spied Hulk, a victim of the historical virus, explaining with a cordial futility to ice-bound tourists the three lies of John Harvard's statue, as if the tale were dismembered fragments of a novel. I surreptitiously joined the group. The statue of John Harvard in the Old Yard was throughout the year, but particularly during commencement, an academic mecca. A bronze figure of a seated youth in the 1600s, it was akin in religious terms to the massive shrouded cube of the Kaaba, about which Islamic devotees on the pilgrimage of Hajji circumambulate counterclockwise in reverent masses. The statue attracted much devotion among international groups of visitors, no less than the rumoured white meteorite within the Meccan shroud, now turned black from absorbing the sins of the world. In the yard, tourists congregated hourly before the statue, which had become a type of jinni representing the limits of human consciousness. Hulk encouraged tourists to rub the bronze-buckled boots of this hirsute founder with his fine countenance and frock coat, like actual students who appeared at the statue to coax a scholarly excellence to emerge before reading period. Harvard's sanctuary was allotted often to the truly accomplished, and more rarely to wandering monks of questionable backgrounds. 
Visitors sometimes mistook these privileges for the tawdry commonality of prestige, a word derived from prestigitation, or the making of illusions. However, it was regarded by passer-by, or what sins it harboured so mutely, it was regarded with affection as the statue of the three lies. Hulk was pontificating marvellously and winked at me. Cast by Daniel Chester French, before he sculpted the Lincoln Memorial, he said, the inscription reads John Harvard, founder, 1638. But none of this is true. The statue is of Sherman Hoare, class of 1882, descendant of a prior president. I whispered, don't forget his pluck. Hulk threw me a foul look. Sixteen years after pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock, Massachusetts Bay Colony purchased this acre of land that became the yard and founded the college in 1636. John Harvard, minister at Charlestown, donated in his will 400 volumes and 779 pounds, now an endowment of 35 billion. I began to flap my arms behind the transfixed tourists. Seventeenth-century Harvard accepted tuition as wheat, Indian corn, apples, honey, firewood, sheep, and, uh, chickens. As the visitors moved on, Hulk and I remained at the statue, observing there were not three lies, but five. The seal on the left side of the statue read Veritas, but the original motto was Veritas Christo et Ecclesiae, Truth for Christ and the Church. And in all other images, the seal was of a shield with three open books, but the statue had the middle book facing downward, a Puritan reminder that not all knowledge is written. From these unsteady bases, the moral imperative of Veritas unseated the prestigitation of those early board members whose nimble wits first conjured the statue's lies. Passing this icon frequently, we were reminded to look beneath accepted reality, even that written in stone and bronze for centuries to question even the underpinning of the university itself. We discerned with amusement our first and final lesson, that the true can be false, so that when we were at last set upon the world, standing in caps and gowns before John Harvard's statue at commencement, it was as if we were favoured politicians at a landslide, recorded forever before a background of lies. The Harvard Square Denizens, a polyglot congregation of medieval historians, chess masters, hasty pudding 
fashion models of the year, fry cooks, CIA analysts, panhandlers, nervous parents, faculty with clutches of admirers, pretenders to Bavarian thrones, pot dealers, ethnographers, medicinal chemists, and lampoon staff burgling the sacred cod of Massachusetts, all buckled down for what might be considered by New Englanders as cooler weather. The unsuccessful French students occupying the boulangerie au Montpain, panicky and wrapped in long black coats against a serious change in climate, assumed a forlorn but waspish attitude of no moral responsibility. They kept checking Harvard's Let's Go office for cheap Air France tickets for weekends in Paris, fleeing presumed sapless Puritan women in their urgency to, as one delicately proposed, ramoneur une poule. A great livid winter cloud, scratching the sky, heralded an ice storm. Imminent snow burials were announced. Students became frantic for comforting dates in the long winter. Unpaired undergrads roved in one packs. Condensing breaths were rising. Anxious student meteorologists began rushing about with skyward faces. Overnight, it befell us. The yard became the ruins of a snowbound Norman castle. Fingers of thick ice marched across shadowy oaks. Fearsome spikes of frosted grass lacerated Cliffy's knee-length boots. Nor'easters began whipping us mercilessly as students ran down Mass Ave, shivering uncontrollably, actually howling into the freezing pelagic spray. Leaning... Into the eye of a ceaseless blizzard, I negotiated snowdrifts in High Sierra expedition gear to the steps of Widener, the monumental brace of granite lions, now with snowy manes and muzzles of icicles, looked upon disordered thickets of cross-country skis and snowshoes. Surf was within, banging snow from her boots and gloves. Hulk brushed the stars from her hair with a stealthy, manly glance at her milky white skin, his eyes then softening in their austerity. We hovered on a broad staircase with carved balustrades in this paragon of Harvard's seventy libraries, with Widener's seventeen million volumes on eight levels, four underground, the world's largest academic library, second only to the Library of Congress. Two massive John Singer Sergeant murals occupied facing walls, the diptych flanking the entranceway to memorial rooms with a Gutenberg Bible. Hulk kept quoting graduation dates. Sergeant, 16. We found leather chairs and green lamps beneath the Rococo ceilings. Quite a setting, I opined, ripping off stiff ski gloves. 
Hulk, the HKS class curator of Harvard Law since his senior days with the Crimson Key Society, seized the moment. The Titanic built this place. His hypnotic, hushed delivery captivated me. Imagine the white star-line flagship Titanic on her maiden voyage out of Southampton, crystal tinkling, chamber music, leading families, then the tear in the hull, the screaming, the black icy death. Slender women from Radcliffe Quad and Lowell House stood with their elegant hands poised over medieval texts. Bootless, with thin black stockings and twilled wool scarves, they had the luminous quiescence of bewitched Madonnas. Pre-med refugees from the basement of the Cabot Science Centre eyeing the beatific feminine, argued with sophomore computer scientists on the maternal inheritance of mitochondria. Hulk persisted. There was 27-year-old Harry Elkins Widener, class of 1907, for whom our surroundings are named, with his father in the madness of death and bravery, helping his mother, Eleanor, her maid, and John Jacob Astor's wife into lifeboat four. Harry's brother, Vincent, was a freshman, too busy for the trip. Did they make it? Well... Harry was a devoted collector of rare first editions, an antiquarian. His will conferred the collection to Harvard. But Harry remembered that he left a precious volume in their stateroom and rushed back. His father waited. The stacks were exploding, the Titanic at a frightful angle, people singing hymns, praying, fighting, scenes of courage and cowardice. A girl was sniffing a grand bouquet of white lilies, her long hair spilled in slow waves before an early 20th century photograph in silver frame of a very proper young man. Harry and his father George D. perished. Eleanor provided these memorial rooms for her son and the library itself and insisted on fresh flowers daily, forever in perpetuity. The photograph is of Harry. I thought to plumb Hulk's depths. What was the book? Ha! An 1598 edition of Francis Bacon's essays. There's probably one at Houghton Library through a secret tunnel under Widener. And the women? Eleanor and her maid survived with Mrs. Astor. Eleanor demanded architect Horace Trumbauer, who designed the campus at Duke, to do the drawings. Everything we see is the expression of a mother's love. Cerf was contemplating the distant John Singer Sergeant Mules, apparently lost in some dream of shellfire and poison gas, but listening to Hulk's tale of the flaming frozen night. That affidavit you signed swearing you knew how to swim? I vaguely recalled some university requirement. 
Eleanor demanded every freshman have swimming lessons after the Titanic it spread throughout the Ivy League. By then, we were in the central suite with its massive chandeliers where Harry's collection was housed, with its deep thirty-foot embrasures and rotunda of ten circular windows. Hulk lectured, elated in a way, rolling with Havardiana. At the 1915 dedication, Eleanor gave President Lowell the key. A graduating senior gave a class oration on the new art. E. E. Cummings, Surf piped in a minor key, then in major key related a woman's right. Harvard refused to give Eleanor an honorary degree, she said, simply because she was a woman. Hulk, newly appointed feminist, did the apologia. Then again, the yard dorms were only fitted with bathrooms, showers and electric lighting in 1914. Surf again, trumping Hulk, a mistress of detail. One honorary was the dashing Alexander Hamilton Rice, Hulk interjecting, 98 MD 04. Physician and explorer of South America, Mrs. Widener soon was Mrs. Rice. She wheeled about, striding away, long red muffler flowing, kitten hips, wizard of politics, tough and tender. Come on, you two, people are dying. Stricken, we hurried to surf. Always the poetess, she took us by the hands to the sergeant murals on the main staircase of Widener. Hulk, sombre. President Lowell's commission to honour the 373 Harvard dead in World War I. 43 were undergraduates and 11,400 served. I looked up at the coming of Americans to Europe. A phalanx of doughboys with identical faces. Every man, Hulk noted. All were reaching for the hands of anthropomorphized Britain with Grecian helmet, Belgium with broken sword, France a young heroine and nursing mother. She was blonde, with sallow, dark, circled eyes, red chapeau, and a suckling babe in arms. Surf. Think of them. The chlorine gas attacks at Ypres. The second mural, Death and Victory, took me away. A dying soldier, lying beneath a faceless phantom, grappling with a triumphant angel of victory, her face and arms heavenward, her lavish breasts, her back arching. The unearthly light of the camellias, before the rain washed the last petals away, manifested for some seconds. After crimson, archives of the unconscious sometimes emerged. Shells burst overhead, heads blown off, entrails eviscerated. Havardians in the Royal Scot Fusiliers, Royal Canadian Highlanders, and even foreign students in the German army, all slaying and slain. 
Radcliffe women, volunteer ambulance drivers at the front, at night no headlights, shell-pitted roads, the rapes, the poison gas, the killings. Hulk's voice over bodies in trenches. First to show the American flag in France was Norman Prince, 08 to 011. Founded Lafayette Escadrille, trained under the Wright brothers. Surf, to me, are you not feeling well? I quietly collected myself. Oh, yes, I just have an appreciation of desperate moments. The yard suggested a forgotten winter palace, its serenity belying the periodic colossal mental breakdowns in the undergrad houses. We passed the archway at Sever Hall with its conduit of distant whispers. We could hear breathing, murmurs, no, light moans of one, a straining virginal undergrad with the accent of the Dordogne urging her companion before reading period to depulsilure her. Harvard Square had dug out. Old people teetered carefully about, snowball sabotage rampant. Folk singers emerged. A well-bundled three-year-old with masses of curls bounced with snowflake happiness in her pram, then cried with fervent tears, Mickey! Mickey! As her mouse balloon floated upwards from her grip, loss and impermanence soon assuaged by copious hot chocolate. A hive of faculty manses streamed beneath crisp winter skies, the street again a honeycomb of faces and mental gymnastics. I thought of Cambridge as a filter from which technocrats and meritocracies arose, a kind of dragnet of the seed. Surf, now, with a café creme and her fetching little movements, settled on an icy iron bench among durable chess players, teasing Hulk with harmless sallies and elaborate rhetorical devices. Nearby was a downcast physics major of eighteen, engrossed in a text on quantum mechanics. Surf swore she sensed that his failed calculated charm at mixers, his subsequent renouncing of worldly pleasures, had terminated in ejaculato precox. He was expressionless, assaying incalculable matters of naked providence. The thin sun shone upon us, the stunning cold making ghosts with our breath. The Charles was a lustreless sheet of lead, overhung with mists like low-lying clouds, the sun dying into amethyst. Frosts crystallised on chess pieces. As Surf was musing on the physics major, Hulk launched his wit. To Surf, do I intuit a disenchanting sense of professional inadequacy? Always the one-ups woman, she lobbed it back. No, that was my pre-final expression of neuralgic vacancy. 
laughter at each peal of church bells as they argued about which was more wicked, more wayward, the flesh or the mind. Hulk concluded it would depend, like Harvard's students' prowess and the university itself, on the monomania in which it was built. Mass Ave was broken with flagrant street hustlers, one confiding with a grin that he made hundreds each day, more than many in the public sector with Harvard degrees. Excuse me, excuse me, sir, sir, ma'am, ma'am. We defected to the embrace of the Kennedy School, where we became face down on the texts, flat against the wall of information, our progressive insanities as yet unchecked. From the years as a lay monk at Hoshinji, I had developed the habit of handling objects quietly, from dishwashing to sweeping to placement of silverware or pens or paper, rather than clattering of unconscious movements. In restaurants, I still noticed if plates were placed with care or in haste. Of the hundreds of faculty and students rushing past the heavy glass entryways into HKS departments each day, I may have been the only one who didn't let the doors slam. Even within the frenetic activity, I turned the knob slowly, opening the door in half-time and seating it soundlessly. It was a monk's sleight of hand, for other methods of passing doorways seemed discordant. No one noticed this private exercise, while I found it comforting. Except for the cloistered hallways within the Divinity School, it was one of the reverent ancient disciplines outside the expertise of Harvard. As I silently slipped past the entry adjacent to the office of the crime scholar Francis X, who normally tolerated the door crashing loudly throughout the day, he called me into his office. You know, you're the only person who doesn't slam the door, which I appreciate. How did you learn that? Frank was Boston, born and bred, early sixties, wiry with an ascetic air. Taken aback at being detected, I could only mumble uncertainly. Before Harvard, um, I was, for some years, a lay monk in a Zen monastery, if that doesn't sound too odd. Not at all. I thought it might be the case, he said with a confiding smile. I was trained in such practices as well as a Jesuit priest. Although excited by this senior's instructor's awareness of such subtleties, but too shy then with faculty to accept his offer of lunch and the inevitable scrutiny such intimacy entailed, I finally submitted to a curious offer he made. Why don't we walk over to a place next door? Something I'd like to show you. I assented. We strolled through the Kennedy School walkways, under arbours of bare dogwood, trees facing the Charles, finally encountering a gothic entry with massive wooden doors and a broad, elaborate iron frontispiece. We had arrived at a monastery. I come here most every day, he said, opening the interior door to the nave. 
and sometimes when things get too confusing or rough, or just to lift the spirit. We sat in these stark-hewn oak pews, beneath stained glass and by tall beeswax votaries, surrounded by a few elderly Canterbridgians and the profound mysteries of Christendom. Within moments, from the vestries beyond the heavy stone walls, appeared two rows of white-robed, full-bearded monks. All walked slowly, their hands clasped under swaying robes, singing the processional of Virilla Regis of Venanitus Tortunatus. Impleta suni quo consiniti, David fidelil carmin, Dicendo natio naibus, regnavit aligno deus. The twenty men, collected in two groups on both sides of choral pews perpendicular to us and facing each other. Motionless, we were all suspended in time, in perfect silence. One voice in Latin song lifted upon the stillness like a single flower petal buoyed upon a soft breeze. The monks responded with a thousand-year-old liturgical chant in plain song, back and forth the voices rose turning majestic humble devoted spiralling inward upon themselves and ceasing unto peace we were only steps away from the kennedy school's intrigues its defence intelligence reports of kill radii and raptor missile lethality the criminal justice analysis of cocaine overdoses and violent prison gangs, the manipulation of third-world governments by covert operatives, in general, the business of minimising or maximising deaths per policy alternative. When the plain song ended, we gave a little bow in the monastic tradition, then wandered back into the complexities of Harvard. In the weeks that followed, we again visited the brothers to hear their chants from the Dark Ages, when only the rare monk scribe was literate, and cunning and malice reigned. We received these graceful teachings, for we both had heard long ago what the doorknob said. A strange pallor occupied the days, finally clearing into everlasting winter. The window sills were frosted, the snow weighing down black branches of oaks and smoothing the graves in Cambridge churchyards. Promising an invigorating tour and a jog, Hammer and Hagendas intercepted me in the Harvard coop, as I contemplated an eight-seat rowing skull and oars mounted high on the wall. We withdrew to Mass Ave. Hagendas, clutching an orange juice, her skin flushed, her breath of clouds. On this fine, ringing morning, always a gallant creature, she smelled like apple blossoms. Hammer, 
had his customary morose hangdog expression of a Sunday, but a thrilled, gravelly voice. His powerful introspection was sharpened by a weekend of incessant review, stretched out on bare mattresses in cheap housing of rigorous texts and nubile tutors. They were like finely bred animals. Hagendas, with a lilac afterglow, gave me one of her conspiratorial looks. As we warmed up with a walk in the yard, the sky had a glassy freshness. My first semester, an awareness of locale, soon was enlightened. Massachusetts Hall, Hammer pointed with his cup. Second oldest building in the country, after Christopher Wren's admin building at William and Mary. And if the doorknobs could speak, Hagen grinned. She had observed my modest habit, now apparently common knowledge. Washington's troops were stationed in the yard during the Revolution, Hammer explained. Continental army soldiers melted down mass halls and doorknobs and metal rooftops for ammo. But there they are, I retorted gamely. The university was the first corporation in the Western Hemisphere, existing long before the United States. First institution to sue against the new government, demanding payment for the doorknobs, and won. Moving quickly now, gaining heat, we soon passed Lowell House. Within were white naperies on long tables, candles, slender stems of glass. Snow laced the tall filigreed ironwork gates, leafless topiaries in baroque planters. Old ballrooms with replicas of Queen Anne and Chippendale chairs, tarnished Edwardian mirrors. Their motto is Occasionum Cognosi Recognize Opportunity. Hagendas observed. There is Thursday tea in the master's residence. On May Day they do champagne toasts on Week's footbridge. Lowell house bells were ringing in a mournful joy, like the end of the War of the Roses. The seventeen bells are from St. Danilov's monastery in Russia, Hammer noted. Stalin was melting church bells for cannon, but a Harvard alum, philanthropist Charles Crane, slipped them out of the country. Our clappermeisters ring them every Sunday afternoon. Sviato Danilov Monastery, Hagendas insisted. They are going back soon with our blessings. The Vera Foundry in Voronezh is making seventeen new bells for Lowell House. I noticed her Russian accent was flawless, like crimson's, but said nothing. Crossing over the Charles, we loosened up by the aged grey stadium, with its thick mats of ivy roots in the winter deadness. Like plants, students had a sessile lifestyle and combated their immobile scrutiny of data with serious athleticism. Hammer, doing deep knee bends, provided background. This is the world's first massive reinforced concrete construction, 1903, 
like Greco-Roman colosseums. Lunges, stretches, our eyes on hagen whipping ponytail. National historic landmark, like the Rose and Yale Bowls. hagen on tiptoes, stretching to the sky and our devotion, then with legs spread wide and strong, folding forward, grasping ankles, ponytail swinging, face inverted, we attentive. 1906, she breathed, upside down. The classics department did Agamemnon. Chariot racing, troops of horses and Grecian temple. The last theatrical was, head touching ground now, Euripides in 1992. Hammer in a triangle pose. This stadium created football's forward pass pass i was monosyllabic with effort remembering only my semester goal 1906 president and alum theodore roosevelt to reduce violence at football games had to decide whether to widen fields by 40 feet because harvard stadium could not be widened the forward pass was introduced greatest innovation in football our straining threesome now gasped together in a composition lane, hagen between us and leading, Hammer close behind her and I last, fueled by the lonely hours of prior incarnations running hard under the blinding white sky. Reading period embraced us, the silent two weeks before finals. The winter's cold cut to the very bone of thought. We wound along against obstinate winds in painful dusks. The campus was virtually deserted. The archways loomed with thinking students who moved ponderously with the gravity of church wardens. I resided in Radcliffe dorms this term. During frequent storms, the small window by my desk ticked with flecks of tossing snowflakes. At brain break, the hiatus at 9pm, when everyone stopped tearing hair and smoting breasts, the wandering halls were a maze of students. They suddenly appeared and disappeared as if in a house of mysteries. I came upon a nearby door opened so very slightly upon a room rosy with candlelight and the urgent night odour of flowers. A single curtain moved softly like a sail in the air. Within were the sounds of some resurrected Aphrodite astride an unseen lover, a glimpse of a satin duvet bunched at her waist, the plunging of her hips yielding shrill, incoherent cries. A tartan shawl with a white brooch lay loose over a Harvard chair. Absolute humanity replaced my logic with entangled emotions. I listened like some anxious voluptuary until one could bear it no longer then retreated to blank pages. The last lectures and reviews had passed. 
We reeled with images of bioterror outbreaks, statistics of swine flu, decision trees on air cover at the Bay of Pigs, all of us obsessively meticulous over fine points as if we were senior microbes. Snow fell steadily past tall windows in the numb drowsiness of winter. Coughing and whispering, brooding and worrying, we looked absolutely pious. Battles of resignations were won or lost those long nights. Even Surf, with her faintly apprehensive solicitude, began showing elements of despair. I fled one night to trek up and down Mass Ave. In a ghostly derived light, from street lamps on decaying snow banks, Hulk staggered up with his thick binders of notes. With a light fatalistic glance, he summed up our predicament. One financial analyst on her way to the World Bank just told me that she can mechanically do the stat problems, but is hopelessly confused. She said it's like mumbling some debased liturgy, well, without realization. Hulk had it. By only a hair's breadth's deviation, we lacked ultimate comprehension of the data. At Harvard, we all had beginner's mind, floating like strange, solitary jewels, hovering late and early over the river of information while mankind slumbered. In these weeks, Hagendas temporarily foundered, Hammer obviously suffered. Everyone had the nursery troubles of teething competence. With rueful attitudes, we closed our books, then wished we could die upon the snows under a high moon. We tried painting fine landscapes of correct solutions with brushstrokes of thoughts, but always slipped on our overbred finesse. As we walked to our rooms, we shivered in the chill air as sirens pierced the night all the way from Boston Harbour. Glory or disgrace, our futures hung on the reading period. Sheltered from powdery snowfalls, we found some relief in huddling under sever arch with cups of hot cider, listening to undergraduates' secret kisses. Benign snatches of moonlight crossed frost-laced paths. Le Monsters, bleary students emerging from all-nighters at Le Mont Library, weaved bloodshot on caffeine overdoses underneath dying elms. The university's hollow-eyed, gaping towers and spires, like tinted cyclorama, considered this fourth century of classes implacably. For relief, Hagendas, Hammer and I began to run at night, crunching on the frozen track in the then undomed bowl as the brindled moon striped the endless, fatiguing lanes. 
returning to HKS or Widener for a moment orated and alive, we too soon became again like Tokyo's otaku, the reclusive computer people, in the requisite tedium vitae of our isolation. On brain break at Widener the night before finals, as students retreated into panic, the Harvard band entered, and as a form of redemption launched into Yellow Submarine. Surf rose and sang brightly in her soprano, coaxing morose undergrads from their desperate labours. We whirled outside to drink in the freezing air on Widener's steps, our Puritan consciences swept away by the shrieking of naked students sprinting in the yard. It was the primal scream, the ritual nude lapse of streakers before finals, as hundreds of delighted onlookers danced and howled. If we didn't command the information by then, all was lost anyway. I couldn't sleep. I took the shuttle to Countway Library at Harvard Medical School. The bus had only a few slumped, speechless students staring at bleak snowfields. Under the deep night with rising moon, the Charles curling, inky water was swollen with blocks of black ice. At Countway, beneath paintings of physicians in frock coats conducting the first surgical procedures with ether, I thought of Brigham and Women's Hospital close by, with its soft blooms of paediatric cancers, the children on uncomfortable steel beds concealed down long, green, anonymous corridors. I wondered if they had flown pink kites. Fatigue, with its ghostly anaesthesia, had clipped the angel's wings. Concentration was futile. It had been only months since I sat in a San Francisco alley after the events with Crimson. Reflecting on the six, spread about the earth with their potential medicine for the cancers of hatred, I felt they had an elementary moral beauty, one alien to the lesser manufacturers of addictive drugs, one worthy of study as a policy fellow. The night was spent reading 19th century medical literature on visionary manifestations and altered states, the work of Alexandre Briere de Boismont, the records of Charles Bonnet on phenomena among the blind. I was due in Vienna after finals to interview researchers at the United Nations Drug Control Programme on proliferation of heroin and cocaine, a topic more fundamental to Harvard's concerns with the public health aspects of lethal narcotics. My itineraries through varying countries often were impromptu. The next of the six were unlikely to find me overseas. Others, studying all night at Countway, were staring at graphs, grasping at elusive facts, far too late for understanding. 
Snow raced past in razor winds until a greyness, a faint light, touched the east. The dawn came beating up white with a thin snowstorm and gusts of light. The shuttle to the yard was noisy, careening, like the harsh metal of doom grinding past the charles. Slow flights of long-necked geese were bracketing the low winter sunrise. Students, pale with apprehension, sat possessed before proctors. Most, assailed by dreams, had sullen, immobile features. Having long surrendered to the power of each word, always clutching at the grains of thought, we had the nerves of lovers, and trembled slightly. Hulk was fascinated by the ceiling, as if waiting for some signal from outer space. Surf danced down the rose, blowing frightened kisses. Hagendas was drawn, internalized, shadows under her eyes. Hammer had a chewed pen dropping from his mouth like a cigarette before a firing squad. With dignity, he saluted. It passed like a fitful dream among sleepwalkers. We wrote what we knew or supposed. Filling voids with hopeful conjectures puerile to the accomplished, marginal costs blended with statistical deviations, nuclear weaponry with cholera, presidential advisers with street people, humanity with extrajudicial killings. The clock hands swept the last hour. My ignorance was revealed, replaced with a sombre humility. I saw the trees bordering the Kennedy School lawns, all adorned with soft snow, blown white in the wind. It was a December morning of crystal, where the very sounds transmitted with clarity. The riverside was dark with evergreens, cold and snowy like white flowers. The frost hoary and blue in the pure, sweet air. At Boston's Logan Airport on Christmas Eve, I weaved noticeably. Ragged with a dirty blue pallor, I stumbled into the aisle seat on Lufthansa's evening departure to Frankfurt and Vienna. The Charles soon became scattered pieces of silver on the impassive earth. A tide of darkness overcame the clouds, while above appeared a swarm of stars, an immense stillness. The flight was a purgatory between worlds. I still wondered when and where others of the six might appear: indigo, vermilion, magenta, cobalt. Crimson had seemed uncanny, strangely familiar, while I, daily mingling with the Kennedy School's many covert personnel, had become a fabulist of superimposed identities. Of doubles. I wore a cheap blue jacket and a Harvard tie to strike conversations with researchers during journeys. Like the leather wristbands or piercings, 
among the little warrior tribes of the square, the tie denoted another tribe, faster, more ruthless, with the outrageous freedoms of academic privilege. Penurious, on a small stipend and full scholarship, I occupied the last row in tourist. One had grown far from the campfires of the Sierras, the magical nights, the dancing and celebration of the forests, the transcendent Pacific, and even farther from the tranquil simplicity of Hoshin Ji. Over the cold Atlantic, to clawing fatigue and relentless beating of my heart, I remembered being a small boy, marching to communion, toward Veritas Christo et Ecclesiae, through the window, with the solemnity of perfect solitude and its infinite, nameless colours, was the evening star. Music was playing, a poignant, rare recording from post-war Berlin of Marlena Dietrich. It alternated with the same song by the Simeon Chorale. Our crossing was to music from Austria's high, holy days. Bringt ihm das beste Lauf auch du zum Stall, Param, Papapam, kleiner Trommelmann. Lieber König, Param, Papapam, in kalter Winternacht, Param, Papapam, Hab euch nichts mitgebracht, Param, Papapam. Nicht Gold und Edelstein, Param, Papapam, Ram, Papapam, Ram, Papapam. Nur mein Lied allein, Param, Papapam, hört mich doch an. Der spielte Param Papapam, der kleine Trommelmann Param Papapam, das Christkind seinen Param Papapam und lachte ihm dann zu Param Papapam, Ram Papapam, Ram Papapam. Nur weiter du, Param, Papapam, kleiner Trommelmann. Spiel nur weiter du, Param, Papapam, kleiner Trommelmann. Next up, we're going to play a phone interview that Kat had with Thomas B. Roberts. Thomas is the professor of educational psychology at Northern Illinois University, where he teaches courses on transpersonal, mind-body, psychedelic, and consciousness topics. 
He is the author of several books, including Psychedelics and Spirituality, The Sacred Use of LSD, Psilocybin, and MDMA for Human Transformation, Mind Apps, Multi-State Theory and Tools for Mind Design, and The Psychedelic Future of the Mind, How Entheogens Are Enhancing Cognition, Boosting Intelligence, and Raising Values. Thomas also coined the term Bicycle Day, which psychonauts worldwide celebrate as the anniversary of Albert Hoffman's fabled bicycle ride home from the Sandoz Laboratory in Switzerland. So, chapter two closes with the narrator leaving the Buddhist monastery. He describes it on page 63. He, uh, so Leonard says, I know that the next monastery is one of competitive students and learned faculty, all striving to solve social problems, world hunger, cyber warfare, overpopulation, biowarfare, etc., he describes going to Harvard as entering into the dragon's mouth. The last chapter con compared and contrasted Leonard living in the Buddhist monastery to living in the prison. Could you talk a little bit about the contrast of being at the monastery to going to Harvard? So the differences between the tranquil monastery and the rigorous academia of Harvard University. Well, never having spent any time in a monastery, there isn't much I can say about that. Um, I thought that was a that was a very clever way for him to write about it as going from one kind of monastery to a kind of a different monastery, but about as opposite as it could be. So the entire book, uh, The Rose of Paracelsus, is framed as a type of research project. Harvard was where Leonard decides to research and interview the six clandestine chemists for the report to the Human Subjects Committee out of Harvard. Besides being a launching point for this research project, which becomes the bulk of the Rosa Paracelsus, the bulk of the story, why else do you think Harvard is such a significant location and so prominently featured in the book? Most of the chapters take place in unique locations all over the world, but Harvard's the only reoccurring location. So why do you think it's significant? Of course, it's the, it's the best known of American universities, and of course, uh, particularly in the area of international relations at Harvard Kennedy School. And, and of course, there are the connections with Larry. It also turns out, interestingly, that Harvard has picked up on some of its psychedelic past and is beginning to be active that way again, much to my surprise and delight. So although he wouldn't have known it at the time, when Leonard wrote it, um, he was sort of preceding what was going to happen there a few years later. Yeah, and that sort of leads into my next question, which was that Harvard seemed, from, from an outside perspective, Harvard seemed to be a bit of a hub for psychonauts and psychedelic cultures since the time of uh, Timothy O'Leary and Ram Dass and uh, Richard Evans Schultes. Even on uh, page 81 of The Rose, uh, Leonard describes some of Schultes' startlingly elegant, formidably serious grad students. Um, <laughs> right. Could you discuss the psychedelic history of Harvard a little bit? Well, I mean, as everybody knows, this is where Ram Dass and Larry got, got going. And they, they, in my view and other people's view, sort of scared a lot of the people away. Um, and that, so that sort of set back the field. There's a big argument, of course, as to whether Larry set back the field or advanced the field. And he did both. Um, and personally, for example, I wouldn't have known about psychedelics, hadn't been, and a lot of people, other people wouldn't. Had, been, had not been for Leary sort of um, amplifying them. At the same time, he gave them a bad rap. So um, it's, a, it's an ambiguous case with me. Um, 
And of course, um, oh, that was a sort of the place even then, even more now than people thought about as being sort of the great American university. Um, now it's clearly, you know, one of the greats among others, and particularly in terms of psychedelics, other places have caught up or even passed Harvard. But they've, they've recently um, started, uh, there's a, called a Student Psychedelic Science Club, and they were going to have a, a meeting there last April. I was going to speak there, but of course COVID intervened, and so the meeting had to be called off. But that's interesting. Some of these major Ivy League schools are, the students there are getting active in the psychedelic era. Like um, uh, Penn has a lot, and Harvard and uh, Yale now has a couple of faculty doing psychedelic research. And so there, there is, it's kind of sort of catching on. There's something now called the Intercollegiate Psychedelic Network, which basically is these students from many schools, both some leading schools and some ordinary schools that have joined it. Um, and that's actually a very good place for people to find out about if they're, if they're particularly if they're students and interested in psychedelics, the Intercollegiate Psychedelic Network. It's online and so forth. And then in um, the emails earlier, you, you mentioned how, did you meet Richard Evans Schultes at Harvard? You described an <laughs> encounter there? Yes, in a way. My good friend Tom Riedlinger, who was a Wasson scholar, um, was a um, grad student at Harvard Divinity School at the time. And um, he uh, had, had worked with Wasson's work and was sort of the guy who actually edited a book on Wasson called The Sacred Mushroom Seeker. And Wasson's materials were at the, um, at the Harvard Botanical Museum up in the attic where, where Schultes had his um, office. And uh, it was sort of off limits, but Tom had access there and took me up there one day when I was visiting. And I finally got a chance to meet this guy, Schultes. And I thought, I'm finally going to get an answer to a question I've always wondered about. And if anybody knows the answer, it's going to be Schultes. So you know, I, I, I told him I had an important question I wanted to answer. He's he a very scholar, and I was in the university, so he took me very seriously and said, well, what is it you want to know? And I said, how did the people in the jungle ever figure out how to make ayahuasca? And then we'll take these two herbs, putting them together, and just the right parts of each one, and how to put them together. I mean, that's just something you wouldn't run into by chance. So how did they finally do that? And he looked at me as if I had asked the most insignificant question imaginable. Is it a botanist? He didn't care about that. He just wanted, he was interested in the plants and how, and the sort of anthropological stuff to him was just sort of a boredom and never got an answer from him. So uh -huh. that was my experience with Schultes. <laughs> Although he, he had a map of it's either Peru or Ecuador, and he pointed to it with a lot of pride and said, look at this, and I saw the word Schultes on the map, and he has a, a river there named after him, which he's very proud of. So at any rate, that was my running with Schultes. And, of course, he was extremely important in getting a lot of his grad students sort of going in the field and keeping the field of psychological drugs going, but she was interested in, in as the plants and the plant angle of things, not the psychotherapy or the anthropological aspect of it. But as, but as you know, you know, his interests are 
rubbed off on a lot of other people. So yeah. that was my experience with, with Schultes. Um, and, and I enjoyed it very much. He's very much a, a sort of old-time New england type professor and, uh, and, and uh, a little formal, I would call him stuffy, but formal. He had standard ways of, of interacting with people. So Yeah. Anyway, and, of course, it was fascinating because that's where Watson's collection was. His books and it's mostly his correspondence, amazing correspondence. He corresponded with everybody, and uh, the material I think is still up there. You know, I haven't been there. No, anybody who's been there for a long time. But anyway, that was my introduction to Schultes, and it's one I won't forget because he was such a character. Yeah, I bet he's one of my heroes. I I actually spent the last uh, three years working in the southeastern Peruvian Amazon. Uh, with the indigenous people there, the Hurakambut and Marakai area. Oh, wonderful. Sort of inspired by him in the long run, but yeah, just as an aside. What, were you one of his students at some time? No, I've actually never even been to university. I've just It was just a, a personal interest. I was attempting to uh, apprentice as an ayahuasca and ended up having to evacuate back in March because of COVID. <laughs> but that's another, that's another story. Well, let me um, go to the side here in a minute. You know, the better universities, places like Stanford and the Ivy League and the major um, state universities, have more than enough students applying for them. And what they're looking for is someone who has a distinct background that can contribute to them. And you have that. You really ought to, you know, apply. And because, you know, your, your work down there and your work at Eric's thing, or rather, doing the audio part of Leonard's book, mm-hmm. really would make you stand out because you have something that, you know, the ordinary high school senior, even those, let's say, with, with perfect SATs, they have plenty of those. So what they don't have is someone who's trained as, as an ayahuasca and worked on this book. Really, you know, you're in the, you're, you could be in line for a very major university. Well, thank you for saying that. I, I'm... Uh, do, look, do look into that. Yeah, I will. Thank you. I, I went to a, a college in upstate New York called Hamilton College, and they're, 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 that would be a good place for you. Although I expect you might want to go to one of the even um, more prestigious universities. Yeah, I've been uh, toying with the idea of getting a degree in anthropology lately, but it's been, it's been an interesting year, so we'll see how it goes. Well, while you're on anthropology, um, there's a guy named Jerry Brown at Florida International University mm-hmm. who is the founder of their anthropology department. And starting in January, he's offering a course on um, psychedelic anthropology religion. Oh, really? It's, it's going to be all online, and it's going to be international students, so there'll be students from everywhere. And this is like Mr. Anthropology in terms of psychedelics. Yeah, that sounds right up my alley. <laughs> yeah, right. It really does. Yeah. Good. All right. Okay, so I just have one more question about the book. Leonard describes Harvard students as being not unlike the six. Both groups had a global theater of operations. They were exiles of circumstance from many worlds, yet there was a fantastic <laughs> poetry about them. So that's a cool Yeah, that's um, a wonderful description. Yeah. So a major part of this chapter involves the narrator encountering and befriending these four younger grad students. There's two men and yeah. two women, uh, whom, like the six, he refers to by pseudonyms, Hulk, Hammer, yes. Surf, and haagen so, I love Hagen-Dazs. Uh Leonard explores Harvard and its fascinating history through conversations with these four graduate student friends. Um, my question is, what was your impression of these four characters in this chapter? Are they um, 
Are they supposed to be like similar to the six or related to them in any way? Uh, um, I think they were real people, but um, he did a, a you know a certain amount of um, um, creativity with them, you know. Um, so I expect they had I expect they had like real, um, originally real people, but you know being a, a fiction writer or that's funny because I don't know whether to call that book fiction or nonfiction. It's both, you know. Mm-hmm. That's one of the fascinating things about it. It works both ways. Um, so I think he probably built up these characters. But that, what's his name? The guy who went to Harvard and knew all the Harvard history. Like uh, that was an amazing character. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so I really thought um, a real strength of Lenders' writing is his ability to um, use details to make a point. That he'll be walking along and notice something or um, describe something, and you get not just what he sees, but what he feels about what he sees. That's something a good writer can do. It's not just describing something, but you're you're involved with his interaction with what he sees. I thought he did that just, just beautifully. Yeah, and then um, my last question was just if you have any other observations about this chapter or anything else you want to say about the book as a whole, um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. One very little minor thing. He mentions a camellia's growing, and I didn't think they grew that far north. Hmm. Um, that's, you know, I haven't looked it up, but I'm, I think of them as being warm area uh, plants. You know, maybe I'm off about that, and there are places you can put warmer plants around buildings and stuff. But anyway, that's the only question I wanted. Also, I thought um, his description of how he and the other students felt on the first days of class was sort of fascinating. Sort of um, among the privileged and at the same time um, ill at ease. Very nicely put, yeah. And then the characters that he runs into, you know, the, the faculty and the sort of advanced students who, this guy was from the CIA, and another guy was a, a somebody in a famous in a, in a former former um, foreign field, and so forth. It's just fascinating. Um, yeah, I, I, and and I like the way he walks around. He does a very good job of describing the Charles River. You know, we really get a sense for it in that. And I really think that's that's good. And of course, the, the various libraries and the things hanging in the library. Nice, nicely done. Um, I, I I really like the idea of the 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 main people who show up, you know, the, whose names are colors. So it's that fascinating. Um, the I I was amazed at. Um, I don't know how many did he actually go to those places that you described, or some of them. What what is the story behind that? <laughs> I don't know. I, I actually met him in Santa Fe uh, last last month, and he maybe jokingly said that he's never he he's never been anywhere. He never traveled anywhere. So if he if he hasn't been to these places, he's got a very active <laughs> imagination. So oh, that's good. Yeah. I figured he'd been to some of them, but couldn't possibly have gone to all of them. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, there's a good writer for you. Uh, you can you can make it seem real. <laughs> he's also kind of cryptic and and mysterious about a lot of this stuff. So who knows. <laughs> Uh, that's not unusual for people who've written about drugs. Yeah, that may be a, a trait of of them. I I should say us. 
So you met him in Santa Fe, but that wouldn't be the first time. Yeah, it's the first time I've ever met him. Um, he he seems really happy to be out and you know just like a new lease on life. So. Oh yeah, I should think so. Boy, he really got a raw deal. Yeah. Had you had you met him before, or have you ever met him? No, before? I've never met him. Just uh, you know, emailing. I don't know how I heard about the book. Yeah, it's it's quite a um, it has a great as you know a great vocabulary, yeah. an incredible vocabulary. Every now and then, you know, I'd underline words and have to go back and look them up. A lot of foreign phrases, but some English ones too. Did he actually spend time in a monastery? Yeah, I think that that was true. The woman he describes as being the head of it was an actual person, so I'm pretty sure that was that was true. They, I hope someday they make a movie out of this, out of him and his life. Yeah, I know. There's a, there's a bunch of people trying. I don't think Leonard particularly wants anyone to do that, but it, it is a fascinating story, and it would make a really good movie. So. That concludes the third chapter of the Rosa Paracelsus podcast. Thank you for listening. Signing off, I'm Kat. And my name's Alexa. Happy holidays!
And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Namaste, my friends. <laughs>